Good morning. Welcome to worship at First Presbyterian Church of Columbus, Georgia. We're glad that you're here to join us as we worship God by offering our prayers and singing songs and listening to scripture. Please come in with us that we may worship God together. Our first scripture lesson today is from Luke chapter 19. These are very familiar words to us about a man who had a radical transformation in his life. As you hear these words, ask yourself, I wonder what God is saying to each one of us through this scripture passage. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and very rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short of stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see Jesus because Jesus was to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, come down, for I must stay at your house today. So Zacchaeus hurried down and was happy to welcome Jesus. Now all who saw it began to grumble and said, He has gone in to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said, Lord, look, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay it back four times as much. Then Jesus said to Zacchaeus, Today, today, salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture is from Philippians chapter 3, verse 10 and following. These are the words of the Apostle Paul to his beloved church at Philippi. He loved that church. They had raised lots of money for his ministry. They had supported him. They loved him. They cared for him. They had prayed for him. And he wrote these words to them, tucked away in this letter that was a vignette to them about their future. Paul says this, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, not that I have already obtained this or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own, just as Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Before I pray and bring the message, I just have to say what an honor and joy it is for me to be at First Presbyterian Church of Columbus, Georgia this morning. Your music is obviously exquisite here. And your windows are just gorgeous. This is a vibrant, vital congregation. I had the privilege of having breakfast in between the two services and ate way too much. 
but your hospitality is wonderful. And I'm a great fan and admirer of your interim pastor, Joel Alvis. Joel is a very respected pastor in the Presbytery of Greater Atlanta. I've known him and admired his ministry for 10 years. And Joel, it's an honor to be here in this pulpit where you preach each Sunday. And it's an honor to be with all of you. I thank God for the joy and privilege of being here. And I was very touched this morning on this Veterans Day weekend that Joel uh, acknowledged all the people who had served our country in the, in the armed forces. Uh, my wife and I have been married 47 years, and our oldest son, son Ryan went to Annapolis uh, to the Naval Academy, and uh, he's now a captain in the United States Navy serving our country on active duty. So I appreciate also acknowledging him and all of you who've served our country. It's a great honor to be here today. Will you pray with me? Gracious and loving God, we did not come to hear a human word, a human voice, or a human opinion. We came here, O oh God to hear your word and your voice alone. So to that end, O oh God, pour through me, please, the gift of preaching, that these words might not simply be my words or my human opinions, but by a miracle of your grace, that we might experience your living word to us. We might not only hear your word, but we might heed it, so that every one of us, every child, teenager, and adult, and everyone who hears this message might take the next step on our journey of faith with Jesus Christ. To that end, O oh God, may these words truly be your living word to us, and we know they will be, for we pray with anticipation in the strong name of Jesus Christ, and may all the people of God say, Amen. Four words. Four simple words. They're inscribed on the cornerstone of the National Archives building in Washington, D.C. An international visitor saw them. He was visiting all the sites of Washington, and he saw these four words, and he was perplexed by them. In fact, he was scratching his head when he got into a taxi cab and said to his cab driver or his Uber driver, uh, what do those four words inscribed in the, in the cornerstone of the National Archives building mean? The four words are, the past is prologue. What do those four words mean? Well, you know, cab drivers or Uber drivers use the vernacular. They, they tell it like it is. So when the international visitor said, what do those four words mean? The past is prologue. The cab driver, the Uber driver said, that means, man, you ain't seen nothing yet. That's the way God feels about the future of the First Presbyterian Church of Columbus, Georgia. Because God knows better than anybody the great heritage of this church. God knows this has always been a Christ-centered church. It's always been a worship-centered church. Worship's always been at the hub of the wheel. And out of the hub of the wheel, everything else comes. But worship and preaching and glorious music like we've heard has always been at the center of this church since its founding. But also it's been, it had an exquisite mission tradition. Your mission of reaching out to Columbus, Georgia, and the surrounding area with meals and with cards and with love and ministry to young people in the community has always characterized this church. And you've also had a global mission to people in other parts of the world. So what God is saying to you is all that is past, all that's been in the past, as great as it's been, is but a prologue to the future that God has in store for you. Paul gives us a clue about this when he said, forgetting what lies behind 
and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And what Paul is really saying is, your past does not define you. No matter what happened in the past, that's not all there is. Today doesn't even define you. What defines you is your relationship with Almighty God. It's not your past that defines you or even your present that defines you. What defines you is a relationship with Almighty God. That's why Paul says, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ personally and the power of his resurrection. So with God, the past is always a, a prelude to the future. With God, today is not the end of the story. God sees through people to who they can become. God sees through congregations to who they can become. Today is never the end of the story. With God, there's always a future. The past is prologue with God. We see this all through Scripture. And we see it particularly in this text today from Luke chapter 19, the story of Zacchaeus. Now, to understand how the past was prologue in Zacchaeus' life, to understand why there was such a radical transformation in Zacchaeus' life, we have to understand that Zacchaeus' life was a study in contrasts. On the one hand, Zacchaeus was a very wealthy, very well-known person in Jericho. If you grew up in the church like I did, you maybe remember the song, Joshua led the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. But Jericho was also known not only for the walls coming tumbling down, but Jericho was the wealthiest tax region in all of Palestine. Travelers would, going from east to west and west to east would always stop in Jericho. It was a center of trade and commerce because they had these beautiful balsam groves and gorgeous roses and trade went on there. There was wonderful food that was served. The aroma was all over the area of Jericho. People stopped there for the night and they would have dinner and they would shop and they would enjoy one another. And it was a wealthy tax district. So on the one hand, Zacchaeus is very rich. On the other hand, he was hated and despised. And the reason was because all tax collectors were hated and despised. And the reason was the Roman tax system lent itself to exploitation. The Roman government never put any boundaries on what could be taxed or how much you could be taxed. All they said to the tax collectors was, you give us the money that we prescribe for a region like Jericho, a wealthy region, that would have been in the proximity of $5 million in, that, in today's dollars in that time. So $5 million is what Zacchaeus had to raise and then give it to the Roman government. Zacchaeus could collect $10 million dollars give $5 million to the Roman government, and they were satisfied. He could pay his little tax collectors that worked for him $2 million, and he could keep $3 million for himself. You realize, you understand now why he was so hated. He exploited the people, and he was a Jew, and he sold out to the Roman government and exploited his own neighbors and his own friends, people he'd grown up with. He exploited them and took advantage of them. I think maybe this is why Zacchaeus climbed the tree. He was wealthy, and yet he was very lonely. I think he'd heard that Jesus of Nazareth was going to come that way. And so he thought to himself, I wonder if Jesus has anything to say to me. 
He had heard, I believe, that Jesus was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That story was spreading. And not only that, but I have to wonder if Zacchaeus knew that Jesus chose as one of his 12 disciples, Matthew, the tax collector. In fact, Jesus chose him right at the tax booth, and he left his tax booth and followed Jesus. I wonder if Zacchaeus knew that. And a sycamore tree is a great place to hide, particularly if you're short of stature. He climbed up in that sycamore tree, Zacchaeus did. It's a, it's a tree that's easy to climb, wide leafy branches, an easy place to hide. And Jesus, when he comes into Jericho, he goes right over to that tree, the scripture says, and he points to Zacchaeus and says, Zacchaeus calls him right by name. Now I have to wonder, how did Jesus know Zacchaeus' name? Did he know him previously somehow? We don't know that. Did he do it by divine revelation? Well, of course, he could have done that. He's the son of God, son of man. He could have known by divine revelation. I choose to believe that Jesus sees the teachable moment. Do you know how sometimes with your children and your grandchildren and in your office, there's a teachable moment to teach a lesson I think the people were murmuring and grumbling about Zacchaeus. There's Zacchaeus climbing up in that tree. What's he doing here? He's exploiting the people. He's taking advantage of us. What's he doing coming to hear our Jesus? And they want to keep Jesus all to themselves. What's he doing there? He's coming to see our Jesus. Why is he doing this? He's climbing up in the sycamore tree. And then Jesus, I think, heard the people mumbling and grumbling about Zacchaeus. I think he walks right over to that tree. He knew Zacchaeus' name because he'd heard it on the streets. And he said, Zacchaeus, come down. And I think when the people People saw this, they thought, oh, good. This is going to be great now. Jesus is going to call Zacchaeus down the tree. He's going to give him a shot, going to give him what for, going to ball him out and scold him and tell him he's been exploiting the people and telling him to stop it and cut it out and return the money. This is going to be good. But Jesus never acts the way we think he should act. Jesus often is full of surprises. Sometimes it's shocking the way he deals with people. Jesus does say, Zacchaeus, come down. But then he adds, for I must come to your house today. In other words, I want to hang out with you, Zacchaeus. I want to spend a little time with you. To have a meal with someone in the Middle East was the greatest form of brotherhood and acceptance and hospitality and sisterhood that you could have in that day, as it is in our day. When you invite somebody over to your home for dinner, it's a sign of acceptance and, and love, and you want to welcome them. So gee, the crowd's upset because Jesus has invited Zacchaeus, and they're going to have a meal together, and they don't like it one bit. Don't you wish... You could have been a spy on that meal. I mean, I wonder what they talked about. Did, did Jesus scold Zacchaeus? Did he bawl him out? Did, did he hit him or something? Did he push him? I don't think so. I think that Jesus just listened to Zacchaeus. I have a feeling Jesus listened more than he talked. You know, Jesus in his ministry asked many, many, many questions. He actually asked questions so much and didn't always get answers, but Jesus was always asking people provocative questions. I think Jesus asked Zacchaeus questions and Zacchaeus started talking to him about his life. And I think in that moment, Zacchaeus experienced a moment of grace. I just wish, instead of preaching from this pulpit, I could take a walk with each one of you today. I'd really love to do it, actually. And I'd love to ask you the question, when have you experienced a moment of grace in your life? Unmerited favor? You got something that you just didn't deserve? 
My wife and I have two grown sons, and for a time they both lived in California, and we now have six grandchildren, and so we have a wonderful time. We love to go to California, and we go to California, we visit the children and grandchildren, and our daughters-in-law, and it's wonderful. But one day we're flying back from California, and we got to the Delta Airlines counter, and Delta had way oversold the flight, and uh, the people were cursing and mad and yelling at the gate attendant, and I heard a lot of religious language there at the gate, and uh, they were yelling and screaming at the gate attendant, and, and uh, then they announced, we've oversold the flight, and anybody who would like to get a $400 voucher can get, come to the desk, and we'll give you a voucher for a flight later today or tomorrow. My wife said to me, Tom, we have never been able to do this. You've always had to come back for some conference or speaking or preaching, but you don't have anything tomorrow. This could be great. We could actually take a later flight today or come back tomorrow. What do you say we get the $400 voucher? So we got up immediately, got in line. And when my wife got up to the line, people were still yelling and screaming to this gate attendant. My wife said, I just want to tell you, you have handled these people who frankly were pretty rude to you. You've handled them in a wonderful way, a very kind way. Frankly, I think I'd have lost my temper, but you've kept your course so beautifully. And my husband, and I really admire you. And also we would like to get our $400 voucher for uh, these new flight. And so the person said, great, we'll give you the voucher. She handed them to Suzanne and we signed them, got the new vouchers. We we're on, booked on a later flight. It was terrific. We went back and sat down, still more religious language, lots of yelling and screaming at the, at the gate. They closed the door. We thought the flight had gone and taken off. And that gate attendant to whom my wife was so nice walked over and said to us, uh, are all the, do you have all your luggage right here? We said, yes, that's all the luggage we have. She said, you didn't put it on this flight. No, no, all our luggage we have is right here. She said, would you still like to go on this flight? I said, well, we would like to go on this flight, but my wife is so excited about these $400 vouchers and we don't want to lose the $400 vouchers. She said, you won't lose the vouchers. You can keep the vouchers. Just keep your voice down. So I said, but we don't want to lose these $400 vouchers. She said, you got the vouchers. Just keep your voice down. So we picked up all of our stuff. She said, walk calmly behind me. She went over, opened the gate. We walked down the little run hallway to the, to the airplane. And she said, by the way, would you two mind sitting together in first class? I said, would you mind if we hugged you? We got on the flight. I took a minute and <laughs> called our son Toby to tell him about it. He said, Dad, this could only happen to a minister. <laughs> it doesn't happen to normal people. Well, we had that flight, but that was a pure gift of unmerited favor, a gift of grace. When have you experienced a gift of grace in your life? I think what changed Zacchaeus' life was he experienced God's grace. As I go through now three philosophies of life that characterize people in the world, I want to ask you, which philosophy of life characterizes you and me? Or in which philosophy of life do we want to have characterize us? The first philosophy of life is the way Zacchaeus lived his life for many years. It's the philosophy of life that says, what's yours is mine. He overcharged the people. He overtaxed the people. But not only that, they would have little taxes like a wheelbarrow tax. A wheelbarrow has one wheel. They would charge people for taking the wheelbarrow across a bridge. And then they would charge them for every wheel that was, went across the bridge. And if they took a wagon across the bridge, they charged them for four wheels. Well, he was exploiting the people, taking advantage of them. And when they said they couldn't pay it, he would loan them the money and charge them exorbitant interest rates. His philosophy of life was, what's yours is mine. I'm going to exploit people. I have a right to exploit people. I can take advantage of people. And that's the way I'm going to live. 
Now, I don't need to illustrate this in what's going on in our world today simply to say we can't open a newspaper or look on the internet without somebody exploiting somebody else, whether it's a person who goes into a church in Texas last Sunday and, and shoots and kills 26 people with a philosophy of life. What, what's yours? It's your life. What's yours is mine. And took away the lives of 26 people. One family lost eight members of their family. And then the people steal one another identity on the internet. And we've heard about sexual exploitation of women. And it's just awful what's happening. But many people in our world today have adopted the philosophy, what's yours is mine. A second philosophy of life is more insidious. It's more subtle. What's mine is mine. Haven't you said this? Haven't I said this? It's my life. It's my future. It's my career. It's my job. It's, it's my ministry. Uh, it's my body. It's my mind. I can do with it what I want. Haven't we said that sometimes? Don't we even say sometimes, they're my children. We, haven't we said that they're my children? Well, gosh, they're not uh, my children. I said this in a Sunday school class up in North Carolina. I was teaching a Sunday school class, and I happened to say, you know, these children aren't our children. We say so glibly they're my children, but they're two and four and four and six and six and eight and 10 and 12 and, and 20 and 22, and then they're gone. And then a woman right in the back of the class shouted out right when I said that. She said, you hope. <laughs> my son is 40 and he never left. We don't own children. They're stewards. We're stewards of them for a few years. It goes too fast. And have you ever said, it's my church? Or have you ever said, it's my pew? Do you sit in the same pew here at First Presbyterian like every Sunday? Uh, I went to a church in New York City, and I'd left a church in Texas. And there was a woman named Evelyn who in our church in New York, she sat in the second pew each and every Sunday. And uh, Evelyn would always come in 10 minutes before church so she could get right in the second pew on the end. And she'd been doing it for 25 years. Well, people from Texas decided they'd come to New York and see a play, and they came to hear me preach one Sunday. They got to church 20 minutes early, and they sat in Evelyn's pew, the pew she thought was my pew. They sat in that second pew right on the end like she did. Well, when Evelyn passed them going down the aisle to sit in the second pew, she sat in the third pew, but she gave them a snarl and she kind of curled her lip at them. And when I asked people to pass the peace, I said, say to people near you, the Lord be with you. And then you respond and also with you. So the people from Houston, from my former church said to Evelyn, the Lord be with you. And she said, and also with you. Evelyn was mad because they'd stolen her pew. But then in the greeting time, the people from Texas said, we're from Tom's old church in Texas. We just came to hear him preach. We're flying back this afternoon. And Evelyn said, oh, I'm so relieved. And so what do you mean? She said, well, I'm so relieved that you're not coming to this church. You're trying to join the church because actually that is my pew that you're sitting in. In fact, I was going to say to you, you stole my pew. And the people from Texas said, that's okay. You stole our minister. <laughs> Nobody owns a pew. Nobody owns a church. Nobody owns a minister. Nobody owns a child. Nobody owns a job. Nobody owns an office. Nobody owns a home. Nobody owns eyesight or bodies or minds. We are simply a steward of them for a few years. Everything we have belongs to God. The Bible tries to teach us this. We don't own anything. So the philosophy of life, what's yours is mine, is going to kill us. The philosophy, what's mine is mine, is going to kill us. The only philosophy of life that really is life-giving is what's mine 
is yours. And see, this is what happened to Zacchaeus. When he experienced God's grace, his life was absolutely changed. When he experienced in God, in Jesus, pardon for the past, power for the present, and promise for the future. When he experienced that, when Zacchaeus experienced that, he realized he wanted to become generous because God is a giving God, and you want to become generous because God is generous. You want to actually become more like God. And Zacchaeus was a whole new person, and so much so that he restored what everything he stole. The book of Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy says, if you stole something from somebody, pay it back and then add one-fourth. But Zacchaeus, and the, the largest you have to make restitution for, is pay it back fourfold. Zacchaeus paid it back fourfold, but before he does that, this is incredible. He says, half of the money I have, half of everything I have, I'll give to the poor, and, and, if I've defrauded anybody of anything, I'll pay it back fourfold. When Jesus heard that he'd given half his money away, and then... He restored everything fourfold. Jesus realized this is a changed life. And that's why he says, today, today, salvation, which means health and wholeness. Salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. The stole that I'm wearing is really the sermon in nutshell. I hope you can see it more closely after the service. When you look at it from afar, several of you commented today, gee, I like your stole. But I want you to know, if you look closely at this, it's really some ugly parts to it. Let me explain. A pastor I work with in Atlanta, Georgia, asked the children in his church on the week before Father's Day, he said, kids, on Father's Day, I want you to come to church, and I want you to bring the ugliest tie in your daddy's closet. And he took all these ugly ties and he gave them to the women of the church. And then he said to the women of the church, would you try to make this into something beautiful? And look what the women did. Now, some of these ties are actually very ugly. If you look closely, what's sad is I own most of these ties myself, actually. But there's a tie here with a Georgia bulldog on it. Sorry about yesterday. Uh, there's jack-o'-lanterns. There's Mickey Mouse. There's Santa Claus. There's a Christmas tree. All kinds of things here. It's really some ugly ties. And the pastor said... Take the ugliness of these ties, he said to the women, and see if you can make something beautiful out of it. And look what they did. And then on the back of it, they inscribed it to me. And the pastor said to the children of the church, out of the ugliness of our lives, God can bring something beautiful. The ugliness is but a prelude to all God has in store. God sees through the ugliness of our lives and God can see what's beautiful coming out of it. Ugliness, ugly ties aren't the end of the story, the pastor said. Ugly ties are just a prelude to all that God has in store. God can take the sin of our lives and turn it into something beautiful. Just like Zacchaeus' life wasn't the end of the story. God turned him into something beautiful. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a fiery furnace wasn't the end of the story. God saw through them to what they could become. Daniel in the lion's den wasn't the end of the story. The end of the story is they were set free from the lion's den and the fiery furnace. The cross is not the end of the story. 
The cross is just a prelude to the future because God had in store the resurrection. And the very thing that they thought was the end of Jesus' life was but a prelude to coming attractions. It was the prelude to the resurrection. And God brought the salvation of the world through the worst possible death. With God, all things are possible. God sees through the ugliness of the cross to the beauty and joy and salvation of the resurrection. How will you, how will I respond to the pardon for the past, power for the present, and promise for the future? Where else are you going to get this but in Jesus Christ? How will we respond to it? Today, we've got a great opportunity. As the offering plates are passed, and you put in a, a check in an envelope or put in some cash dollars or, or sign a pledge card with what you're going to give. I hope it won't just be something you'll do as a little addendum to your life. I hope you will literally climb into the offering plate. And as you put that into the offering plate, whatever is the size of your pledge, just put that into the offering plate. If you've not made a pledge, what a great time to do it. Just fill out a pledge card, put it in the offering plate as a way of saying to God, I'm giving you my whole life because I want to invest not only in the future of the First Presbyterian Church of Columbus, Georgia, I want to invest in the future of the kingdom of God. This could be life-changing for us today like it was for Zacchaeus. Remember that this church has gone through some challenging times, but that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is that God has a great future for this church, and God's got something incredible for each one of us and for this congregation that's beyond what we can ever imagine. For with God, the past is always a prologue to the future. And you know what that means. I mean, you know what that means. It means, man, you ain't seen Amen. It's been a privilege to join you this day in worship. We're glad that you were here. First Presbyterian Church seeks to serve and minister in the name of Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord be kind and gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you with favor. Go in peace as you love and serve God.